I'm going to give you a uh, start with an example that's a little more. Uh, it's more graphic than I'm comfortable with, but I, I think you'll understand where I'm going. You ever hear of a cage fighter? A cage fighter. When I was younger, that was kind of a backwoods term for like a rough guy, a cage fighter. But over the, the recent decade, cage fighting has kind of grown in popularity. Um, it's part of the mixed martial arts uh, movement. And you have these rings, these, the octagon, right? You have this, this place that is surrounded by a cage, and then you throw two fighters in, and they beat one another up. And, and I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't get it. It's, uh, it's uh, not a sweet science, uh, so to speak, for me. But uh, the cage does something in the image. You look at the cage, and I think the cage is mostly symbolic, but when you look at it, or you see this cage, it kind of ups the ante. Um, like there's no escape. Two come in, one come out, is the kind of the implication of the cage. There's... No holds barred is the feeling, you know. There's no one to throw the towel in for you in cage fighting. You've got to tap out or fall asleep. Those are the two ways you end the fight. It's, it's a lot more gladiatorial. It's, uh, there's an increased intensity and increased kind of combativeness that's involved in cage fighting. And the cage is a symbolic part of that, I think. Well, if I don't watch it, why would I use this? This is why. You ever feel like your marriage is like a cage fight? Yeah? Like there's no escape. Like, you know, you're up against the wall, and it isn't like somebody's like, well, hold on a second. He's up against the wall. I mean, your spouse has got you where they want you. <laughs> It can feel that way sometimes. Sometimes marriage can feel, right? it's supposed to be this great thing, but sometimes it can feel like the most combative place on the face of the earth. In fact, it can even feel like it's designed that way. We're going to talk about that today. Today is our second uh, message on marriage uh, in a series about the kind of burdens we carry in, in the Christian life. Uh, last Sunday, when we approached marriage, we spent the day saying, what is the word, what does God's word say about marriage? And we examined for the morning what God's, how God instructs us towards marriage. Today, what we're going to do is, uh, we're going to have a brief aside in the front, but we're going to look at how does the Holy Spirit minister in marriage? Where, where's the room we give him to minister in marriage? And what's the role of the church with regards to marriage. That's the pattern we're trying to do on these issues, is what does God's Word say? How does the Spirit minister? And what, how does the church in, involve? Because we can know what God says about marriage. You can have it nicely described, and you can sit it up on the hill, but if your marriage is not up on the hill, sometimes we need the Spirit to help us figure out how do we get it up there? How do we get it there is, can be the question, and we'll spend a little bit of time on that this morning. What I want to do uh, before we, we turn to the conversation about the Spirit, however, is to talk a little bit about um, a particular uh, side of marriage, and that is 
the situation where one spouse finds themselves uh, in a relationship that's uh, in, out of balance with regards to the faith. One is a Christian and one is not. Um, I just want to share a little bit about not just what God's Word says but um, about that, but um, maybe a disposition on how to live inside of that. We know increasingly as our world drifts away from the church that this is the kind of situation we're going to find, is that as the gospel spreads into families, it's going to create an imbalance. Or uh, people come into the church and, uh, you know, previously married, and then imbalance occurs. And, and here's, here's something that's said. It's in First Peter chapter 3. It says this, just two verses. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now realize, it's important to realize, I'm, we're not talking here about um, an evil spouse. That's not the issue. N- non-believing is not evil. There are many confessing Christian spouses that are abusive. And likewise, there are many non-confessing spouses who are pretty good husbands or wives. The, the, the two aren't necessarily directly correlated. And, and the teachings on Scripture here is not how a wife should live amidst an abusive home. That's not what it's about. It's how does a wife bring the gospel into a home where it's not currently residing. That's, the, that's what the teaching is about. And, and it's when, with regards to the imbalance of marriage, if you look through the Word, what you'll find is, uh, oddly enough, I mean, in a book where most of the teaching is directed towards men, the conversations about imbalance are, the few that are there are often directed towards the wives. And I'll share with you why I think that is. Um, though I'm not sure, I think from experience, uh, very often uh, when the husband comes into the Lord, that's a natural path for the family to follow. It's, that happens with greater regularity. It seems to be the course of things. Uh, when the wife comes to the faith first, um, it creates um, awkwardness because uh, the person with the answer is in a submissive role, and that's a delicate obstacle course. So I, I think, I'm just guessing, I think that's why the, uh, the word ministers specifically uh, towards uh, the wife. And in the, in the text here, it says that the way that a wife wins her husband over is how? Through a submissive spirit, through kind of reverent, submissive Holiness, which is, by the way, not any different than the teachings for the wife of a Christian husband. Is it? It's the same teaching. I mean, if you, were, if you put Ephesians and Corinthians and Titus and Timothy all next to this, you'd say, well, wait a second. Peter didn't really say anything different. It's, it's really a quite ordinary teaching. But I, it... What makes it specific is that Peter's citing this specific instance and saying, in this instance, the best way to win your husband over is through quiet submission and reverence to the Lord.
be a light in your home that he, in, that he cherishes. You know, if you're living the gospel out in any environment, but especially in the home, if you're living a gospel out, and right, the gospel is good news and it gives life. And if you're living that out in a home, your spouse will see it and be nurtured by it and be attracted to it. That's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying is trust in the power of the truth of God's love. And do that within your home. Now, I want to add, just pastorally, a, a, f- a few kind of ideas around this. One way that uh, maybe this can be done, uh, often, oftentimes, sometimes, when uh, a wife is in the faith and the husband is not, the f- it's easy for the spiritual focus to become on what, what he's not. He's not a Christian. He's not this. He's not that. There, you may find great health and encouragement from the Lord if you learn to edify and celebrate the areas of your un, the unbelieving spouse that are quite godly. Listen, you don't need to be a Christian to be a patient husband or to be honest or to be a good dad. And there may be great ways that you can cherish your non-believing spouse and edify them towards the gospel by seeing where the gospel is alive and at work in their life and celebrating that. Saying, I love the way you're good with the kids. I just, I really honor that. You know, and I, I, I'm speaking to people in this circumstance right now. It, you know, I, I imagine this has been a big part of your spiritual journey and I'm just encouraging you that there's, there's room there to uh, embrace somebody who is not of us, but is sharing part of the things that, that we value. And here's the second thing I'll say along these lines, and you'll have to guard your spirit against this, purge this out of your spirit, which is the selfish desire for your spouse to come to know the Lord so that they become a better spouse. That is selfish. That's using the gospel to get a better spouse which makes us impatient, right? In other words, it desires the same end, but for a different purpose. And when we desire the same end, but for a lesser purpose, how we get there can become problematic. The reason we desire that anyone would come to know the Lord, the primary reason is because God is good and he loves us and he makes people new things. And that should be desired just on its own face value. That's enough. But when we want it so that maybe they'll become better. First of all, what you'll find is that when they become Christian, they don't become perfect, and you will have created for yourself this myth of if he only knew the Lord, he wouldn't... Sanctification is a lifelong process. So, But the second thing is, is we're desiring something that's very godly but for a selfish purpose. So guard yourself against that. And then this is the last thing, and I'm not saying this, the Word is saying this to wives. Don't preach to him you will not preach him into the kingdom. That's, that's God writing. It's not how it works. What the Lord is saying is the way to reach him is through reverent love. Be the best wife you can be and allow him to lead himself to the decision of Christ. You know, leadership, godly leadership, is a, is, a, is a primal act of a godly husband, and we don't want to steal that from him on his way to God. We want to leave that open so that he can make his own decision. And by and large, I'm telling you, God said it, but I see it. 
So it validates with experience. To the husband, I'll say this. Less is said in the word about specifically to a husband of an unbelieving wife. Another passage in Scripture that's, that's instrumental here if you, if, or useful is 1 Corinthians 7. You can go read that. But in, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, this is what it says. It's, it's Paul kind of counseling the church. He says, by the way, if you, if you come into the faith and your spouse is not, it says to the wife, it says, if your husband will keep you, Stay in the marriage. Likewise to the husband, if you come to the Lord and your wife will remain, remain married. Because the, the understanding is, is that you are the one who just changed. I mean, the unbelieving spouse can be like, wait, wait, I didn't sign up for this. This Christian thing. And the thought is, understand, if they'll keep you, work the marriage out within that setting. And I would say that to, to husbands of unbelieving wives. If they'll remain with you, I would say continue to love the Lord and lead your family. Lead your family in God. And if they will stay, then celebrate the marriage. You have to lead your family in the Lord, your children. Right? We, we are behoven to God first. And then we love others. I, uh, I I think, uh, just to the, the individuals in this room who struggle with this, one thing you do see in the Word is that God takes the time to say, I see the situation, I care, my spirit blesses it, trust me. And so I do want to encourage you out there that God has not forgotten you, and His grace was designed for just this sort of difficult thing. So it's within the hand of God, and follow His Word, and I believe the Spirit will work. Okay, back to um, the larger conversation about how does the Spirit work in marriage. We're going to talk about two distinct kind of ways that the Spirit, two places the Spirit can show up and, and places where healing, if you just understand it and embrace it, that's where healing can begin. But here's a, a warning that I'll say right in the beginning. Do not think about your spouse during this part of the sermon. Okay? I'm not preaching to them about how they can get all their issues fixed. This is a message to you. You can't fix your spouse, right? They're going to make their own decisions. And you got a whole boatload of issues. You don't even know the issues you have. So this is to you how you should stand up under the covenant of marriage. That's what this is about. So don't be nudging, all right, and pointing and jabbing or taking notes for them to read later. Like, that's a really good point he made about that thing that a husband should do. Don't do that. It's about you. All right. With that said, and that may be the most important thing you need to know about marriage. This is about you. With that said, if you remember the image of the cage fight, right, the cage fight, sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where, where it's rough and it's difficult and we wonder, how did we get here and who would sign up for this? Like, you know, nobody should come to you saying, I want to get married because at that moment you would say, you'd wave them off. When it's that, like that in your spirit and you're wondering, who did this? I'm here to tell you that God 
did this. God built the cage in which you now feel trapped. It was by his design. A man of God, a woman of God, come together, make an agreement before the Lord, surrounded by a people of God. Those are the preconditions of marriage from last week. A man of God and a woman of God submit before the Lord in a, in a covenantal contract to be together all the days of their life that's done before God and that's surrounded by a people of God who affirm that because they themselves are in a broader covenant before the Lord. That's, that is the cage. That's a systematic cage for marriage. God's building something that is to keep us in, and it's very hard to get out. You can't just throw the towel in on the marriage. You're in it till death. Do you part? It sounds good at the oath, but it's, it's a cage fight contract. For better or for worse. Why do we say that? Of course it's easier to be married and better. It's the worse that makes marriage hard. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. It's saying I am in this cage until I am the only one left. That's what we say. The Lord has built this cage around us. And this is why. This is why. It feels problematic to many of you. If you're in a difficult time of marriage, it feels problematic like this darn cage. But this is why the cage has been built. Because there's no other place on the earth where you are as honest and real as in your marriage. It has to be a cage. Because it's the only place where the honest version of yourself is coming out. This isn't your honest version of yourself. You're not looking at the real me. That's the realest version of me you'll get is me telling you you're not looking at the real me. I'm filtered right now for the preservation of my own marriage. But in my cage, she knows who I am. Just like your spouse knows who you are. This is the only place where you can get brutally honest. It's the only place where you will necessarily become brutally honest because it's the only safe place. We get real in marriage because they can't walk away. You can't walk away from me. We say that. We actually say that, right? In friendship. Do you do that in friendship? No. Why? Because they are not contractually bound before God to stay. You say to somebody, you wouldn't do it. You know, you really gossip a lot. I like visiting with you, but you gossip all the time. Why do you not say that to them? Because they will walk away and gossip about you. And you will become the pariah of the town because... They're fired up and they're not bound to stay in the cage. There's out. There's no cage. Your spouse is forced to stay with you. And because of that, we take one another for granted. Because of that, we bring our real issues into our life. Wait, all day long, we're faking it, faking it, faking it, faking it, faking it. We get home, the mask comes off, and that's who we really are. Why? Because we're in a cage. Praise God. We're in a cage. Do you see what God has done? God has created a place where the real version of yourself can come out. Why has he done that? He has not done that because he wants you to have a hunky-dory marriage. He's done that because he is transforming you into a new person. He's trying to make you something that you are not and that you're very far away from. He's trying to profoundly change you in deep places that you don't even know. And the first step in doing that is that you know who you are. 
by yourself, you're not even as honest as in marriage because you, you can't talk back to yourself like your spouse can. We need this honest place. Think of it this way, men. I can always pick on you guys because I'm one of you. But it works the other way. You come home from your big fancy job. You sent a hundred emails today. You walk into your house, oh sender of a hundred emails. You moved electronically $6 million from one theoretical place to another theoretical place that we probably don't even have anyway. You go home and your wife gives you one big, fat, big whoop. Who cares? Like you walk in from your big 100 email day like you just took down a woolly mammoth with a spear, like ready to be appreciated for your 10 hours of sitting in a cubicle, and your wife big whoops you right in the, in the way in the door. You need that. There were days I took my jet off, blew stuff up, strafed a tank, came home, and got big whooped. (laughs) My wife is wired to big whoop me. Now, why do we do that? Because if in absence of marriage, there's nowhere in the world that tells you that you're not the bee's knees, that you're not the coolest person, that you're not all of that. You come home, and the wife who knows who you really are says, big whoop, Help me with dinner. <laughs> Praise God. You know, one of the sickest things you can find is like uh, some guy who's never been approached with brutal honesty and actually thinks he is the man. It's disgusting. This is what marriage is for. Marriage is this place where the true version of ourself can be brought out, stuck in the daylight, fingers pointed out, going, this is what's wrong with you. And it feels like a cage match because you say things that's really the product of your own sinfulness. It comes out, it bounces off your spouse and back into your face, and you project your anger on them. But it's you. It's your sinfulness. This is not about your spouse. This is about you. You want a successful marriage? It's not about your spouse. It's about you. God did not ordain marriage so that people can have a hunky-dory life. God ordained marriage so that he can take a human and present them spotless before the throne. This is the way that God carries his truth from generation to generation to generation. He takes imperfect people, he places them together in a cell that creates honesty, and through that his Holy Spirit works. Because when we are honest, then we are brought to our knees eventually. When you can finally admit that I am not the man, I have anger issues that I cannot control, and all day long they build up in me and build up in me and build up in me, and I walk home and I take it out on the very person God told me to love. Then the Spirit can work. Do you honestly think these are marriage issues? These are just issues of the fall that happened to be seen in the container, the cage, that we call marriage. Praise be to God. What what I want to say maybe is this. The fact that sometimes your marriage gets rough is not necessarily problematic. It may be a sign that the marriage is working. You didn't marry her perfect. She's not perfect and you're not perfect. Why would you expect daisies the whole time. It has to groan sometimes so that we can see who we really are, which is why God made it a cage. 
so that it can groan and yet not break. I'll say this. If your marriage is on the rocks, if you're in that place where you're not the biggest fan of marriage right now, but you're not, you're not on the way out, like you're not faking it so much that right now you don't really care what I say because you're plotting your course out. If you're still there, there may be great value. I'm not, this is not going to solve the problem, but there may be great value in saying to your spouse, I just want you to know that the cage hold. Like, I just want you to know I'm here and I'm not leaving. Like, I know it hurts. I know we don't like to talk. I know we haven't had sex in a month. I know there's this, right? This, we, this is what's happening. It might be beneficial just for you to say to her or for you to say to him, I just want you to know that I am committed to this covenant. I'm here. Just to know sometimes that you have a strong cage is healing. And do you not think that God will bless that? Do you not think that God would bless his own children who would say, despite the fact that right now I don't like that person very much because of you, Lord, I am committed to staying here because you have to show me something about myself. If you were the father of that child, what would you do? If your child behaved that way and you had the almighty Holy Spirit full of power that you could pour out on them? This is how the Spirit works. The Spirit works by us saying, we don't get it and we're helpless and we're on our knees because God can do it. Maybe you should just reaffirm. I'm not saying reaffirm that you love them. Reaffirm the preconditions of marriage. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in his Holy Spirit. And I believe he's ordained me in this marriage and that it can work. That's the first point. Here's the second point. The preconditions of marriage. Remember those preconditions? It's a man of God and a woman of God coming together in a covenant surrounded by the people of God. That's God's way of saying, I want to be in them in, in, as individuals and in them as a, as a couple and in them as a community. I want to be in all and through all to my glory. It's another way of saying, I want him to love her and I want her to love him and I want them, the church, to love the couple and in all things I gain the glory. That's the preconditions of marriage. The preconditions of marriage is not romance. Marriage counseling, where the goal is to rekindle the romance, is reaching at the wrong precondition. I'm all for romance. That's not the heart of marriage. It's not romance. It's not affection. It's not the fact that you liked her and you go way back. All of that's good. All of that's great. It's not the preconditions for marriage. Man of God, woman of God, committed to the Lord amidst the people of God who are committed to the Lord. If that's the case, then why are we always looking for some specific marriage fix. Like if, if all it really is, is the only precondition of marriage is that he loves the Lord and serves him and she loves the Lord and serves him, then why are, are we 
the cure for marriage is not a, some bizarre additional thing. The cure for marriage is the issues that come into every man of God's life and every woman of God's life. They're ordinary issues that exist outside of marriage. In other words, instead of like, I mean, marriage is in trouble. Where's the six verses in the New Testament on marriage? And it says, you know, submit or love. And you're like, well, that's not that helpful. That's okay. It doesn't have to be that helpful because your issue is outside of those passages. It's in all the other passages. It's a faith issue, or it's an anger issue, or it's a forgiveness issue. I mean, gentlemen, who wrestle with sexual addiction of some way, shape, or form, do you think that's because of your marriage? No. It's probably there before, and it will be there after. It is a Christian life issue. Your inability, your, your anger issues. Is that because of your spouse? No. It's because you're fallen. And it's because you're sinful. And you're, it, because it shows up in your marriage, is because your marriage is safe and it's honest. So it shows up most there. But remember, God's object is not to give you some hunky-dory marriage. God's object is to transform you into his likeness and present you spotless before the throne. That's what the Lord is trying to do. And so what we find is, is that the whole Bible is instructive to dealing with the issues of marriage because there really aren't very many specific marriage issues. They're issues of the Christian life. Just listen to this. You have trouble forgiving? How many times do I have to forgive my wife? Seven. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Is that a marriage passage? No. Listen to this one. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they have a small rudder, or although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Is that a marriage passage? Yes, no, not specifically. Does it apply? Amen. How have we with the tongue hurt and scarred our spouses with such cruel things? Why? Because we take them for granted because they're trapped in the cage. You see, the Lord is trying to minister to you through his whole word. He's trying to minister to you in a place that is safe. But the issues in your marriage are not Husband-wife issues, for the most part. The issues in your marriage are your issues that the Lord is trying to change. The Lord is trying to make you presentable before his throne, spotless, white as a garment. This is the same way with the passages on fidelity or of anger. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. How often have we given the devil a foothold in our marriage because we simmer? Listen, silent types. 
the ones who go under. They submerge for a month. You're giving the devil a foothold. When you add, well, there's another thing, there's another one, right, in your little silent list of all the reasons why he or she's not enough, not as they should be, all the while the Holy Spirit is saying, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Fidelity, sacrifice, submission, love and respect. God's word calls us to be holy before him. We have in our hearts this desire for our our spouse to be adequate for us. How does that work in the gospel? I mean, when you think of what Christ has done for us, did he come? Is he the groom of an adequate bride? Does he keep a record of wrongs? Does he make a list? Does he get angry and go silent? Does he stop giving grace? Does he get harder to forgive? Does he have anger issues? He is perfect in the way he dispenses grace and truth at all times and in all places. He has, when we were not worthy, come to us to make us worthy. He didn't come to a great, he wasn't confused by infatuation to think that the bride was all that. It's not why he came to earth. And he certainly didn't come to earth to get positive strokes about himself from his bride because the church has not done a good job of that either. Jesus Christ came to earth to love something that did not deserve love so that it might be transformed and made spotless before the throne of God. Go and do likewise. We want a magic pill for marriage. We actually, we want a magic pill for our spouse for marriage. It doesn't exist It's the regular teachings of the Christian life and it's our ability before the Spirit to say, I have issues that I cannot conquer. If if you're part of a generational sin, you look and go, my dad was this way or my mom was this way and her mom, can you possibly think you're going to nip this in the bud all by yourself? That's God's way of saying, you need to come to me. There are things that only he can release you from and that comes from a, just a humble disposition before the Lord to say, Lord, I am not enough in my marriage. I am not enough. You've shown me in my marriage who I am, and I cannot change without you. That's the point of marriage, is to present you spotless one day before the Lord. And to have kids, which, by the way, make us way more honest about ourselves. Right. You think you have forgiveness issues well, in marriage, and then you have kids. Patience? Just have kids. It's the Lord unveiling, our, unveiling ourselves to ourselves. Okay. That's how the Spirit works. I want to spend a second on how the church comes into this. And it will be a very short time on the church. I don't want it, us to dim- diminish it just because it's short. Because it's, it's simple in concept. It's simple, it's easy but hard, right? It's simple but hard. Um, but I don't want, so just because it's a few minutes, I don't want us to discount it. But here it is. This is how the church is involved. You are to love the couples and families in the church. You're supposed to come around them and care about them. 
I know that sounds simple, but it's hard to do. And it is not possible to do in an hour and 20 minute service where you don't say a word. That's not church. That's the worship service. The life of God's people is a life that's lived together. And by the way, you know about marriages that I'll never know about, right? Collectively, we have a much better sense on who we are than any one person from any perspective. And in fact, there's many marriages, I know you think you're not qualified, and I know you think, you know, I'm not a counselor, and I didn't go to a course. If you're a friend and you love the Lord, God qualifies you to care in a way that's sensitive to the Spirit. Pray, 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 pray. Go try something. But you should know that at your, at your level of just a regular person, you have access to people's marriages that even I don't have or a counselor doesn't have because you can be a friend. This is what God has called us to do, is to love him, to love one another, and that's done by sharing our lives together. In this church, but you can ask questions. How's your marriage going? That's a nice, it's always a disarming way. How's it going? How's that marriage working out for you? It's a smarter way to say it than that. I'm not smart right now. You know what I mean. You can brainstorm it on your commute to work. You know, how's that working out? Go to lunch with the person have no agenda at all except to drop one line in the whole meal. That's my move. That's my move. I do it. Right? You just drop one line. Give enough. Don't do it when they're paying the check and they're leaving. Like, oh, how's the marriage going? No. No, you just, I'm just saying, and if they want to respond, great. But can't you just do that? You know, all day brainstorm one good line and pay for someone's lunch? You could do that. scheme to be a loving body. It's done through friendship. In our church, the closest, this happens in a lot of different places in the church, uh, uh, Sunday schools, and, but probably the best, single best place to describe this kind of thing is a life group. That's in our church, it's a group of families that get together, they, they meet together, they study the word and kind of live life. You know, they're not as, it's not as intense as a marriage, you know, you don't have to pour your guts out and, you know, be all sobby and everything. But it's, a, it's closer than this. It's a place of going, I'm pursuing honesty and accountability before the Lord because he said so. And I'm doing it with this group of families. And the phrase life group is really just an empty phrase. It's a container. It's a hollow shell into which we pour families. And you put these families in, and then they make up the life group, whatever it ends up being. I mean, there's a, some basic skeleton to all of that. But I'm here to say that if, if you're part of a life group and, you know, it, it's not going great because there's a, there's a couple in it or a person in it with an issue, in your mind you're going to say this, oh, the life group is a failure. It's not a failure. People in the life group are a failure. It's actually serving its purpose. You draw close and you see ugliness. That's reality. What we want is we, we want self-serving groups. We want my groups is what we want. I groups. I could coin that. I groups is what we want. No, they're life groups. They're lives shared together. If you have, I want to make an invitation. If you have 
uh, if you're not in a life group or if you're in a place where you've been in one but you've backed out or you know, if, you, if your marriage is in a place going, we could really use some people around us, uh, this is just a blanket invitation. Talk to me, talk to Pastor Terry, Jeannie Fowl. She's our director. She's been working very hard to help people get tied into life groups. This is a great time to come mention it to us or email us, and we'll help you get involved. That's probably the single best way in our church that we do this. The larger church, if you look in your bulletin, I want to offer you one thing. The larger church, the you know, invisible church of God, uh, there's a conference in your bulletin. Paul David Tripp is about as fine a man, a counselor, as uh, exists. So he's part of the CCEF ministry. I know it's a short turn. I didn't find out about it until last week. So, uh, But it's in Philadelphia. Um, it may respond to some of you. If your marriage issues are in a combination because of financial issues, just... Just call me and tell me you want to go to the conference and we'll pay for the conference. That's no problem at all. So sometimes those things are connected. Don't let that stop you. Uh, We'll happily afford it. If you're rolling the dough, don't call me. Pay for it yourself. Listen, the the point of marriage is not to give us a hunky-dory experience. The point of the marriage is for God to take two people who are committed to him and to deliver them spotless before the throne. That's the goal. And in doing that, he creates this cage where we can be honest and sacrificial and see who we really are so the Spirit can truly minister. And the issues that are, that are in our marriages are normal issues. They're normal Christian issues that the Bible is all about. The question is, are we ready, willing to submit to the Spirit in it?